walk around this building, you may have already noticed that you encounter with some frequency this word metta. It's on the front of the building. Sometimes you might even get a note and it's signed metta. I remember years ago, someone new to IMS asked me, who is metta? Um, fair enough question. So tonight, metta is not a who. <laughs> tonight I want to talk about metta. It is a Pali word uh, from the language in which the early discourses were recorded, which has its roots in the word metri, to befriend, to be a friend to. It comes from one of the earliest collections of discourses of the Buddhist teaching called the Suttanapata. And there is this jewel of a teaching in, in the Suttanapata called the Metta Sutta, the Metta Discourse. The teaching of boundless or immeasurable friendliness. Now, the thread of this teaching actually weaves its way through the whole of the path. It's one of the central qualities of the heart that is cultivated, central also to understanding. Metta, or this boundless friendliness, is, is said to be one of the keys that brings suffering to an end, that awakens our heart's capacity for boundless and immeasurable kindness and friendliness. According to the Buddha, metta ennobles our hearts and it leads to awakening. Now certainly the more that I practice and the more that I teach, the more do I understand how very thin the membrane is that separates metta from all other practices of meditation. We could ask, what is metta without mindfulness? It would look like just a state that would come and go. We could also ask, what is mindfulness without metta? It could just be a cold stare of attention. And in one of the discourses, the Buddha says, there is no higher mindfulness than metta. Metta often translates as the willingness and the capacity to stand near to, to stand next to all things. In a way, this is also, of course, the very essence of mindfulness. Its nature is to turn towards, to befriend, to be close to, to have a relationship with. And of course, the nature of mindfulness is part of this process of coming ever closer to the simple truths of each moment. And I think in our lives and in our practice, we really see how true this is, that we can't understand anyone or anything or ourselves from a distance. We don't forgive from a distance. We don't find joy and generosity from a distance. 
And compassion certainly is not a remote offering. And time and time again in our lives and in our practice, we are asked to stand near to joy and to sorrow, to heartache and to fear. We're asked to stand near to the people we love and the people that we struggle with. We're asked to stand near to the difficult and the lovely, emotions and thoughts, and all that our bodies can and will experience in this life. Now, in my understanding, it is this willingness and capacity to be equally present with all events and experiences, with what starts as a bounded friendliness and warmth that can turn into a boundless warmth and friendliness. That is this willingness and the capacity. This is the very ground of insight, the very ground of understanding, and in its deepest sense is the beginning of liberating the heart. Perhaps it's the most significant step, the first step in bringing suffering to an end. In my experience, certainly in teaching, my experience in my own practice, this movement from aversion and resistance to kindness and befriending is the most radical and the most significant step any of us can make. It is the place where change can begin to happen, where transformation can begin to happen. The Buddha referred to this as Chetovamuti, the liberation of the heart. Liberation of the heart through metta. It is a path of awakening. Tatung Tuku even spoke about metta in this way. He said, loving compassion is like sunlight, awakening and bringing joy to beings. Its beauty is like a rainbow, lifting the heart of all that it touches. Now, metta has not only a direct relationship with mindfulness, with insight, with awakening. It is the base of what are called the other Brahma-Baharas, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity. All of the qualities of heart that really ennoble, ennoble, bring a sense of nobility to our lives. And if we wish to understand compassion, it begins with metta, the willingness to be close to. If we wish to understand what joy is, it has its roots in metta, that capacity to befriend, because that is the beginning of being able to be touched and to have our hearts glass gladdened. If we really wish to understand really what unshakable poise and balance is, the very nature of equanimity, it begins also with understanding what metta is. These are all so interwoven. Long Chengpa, Long he once said, I really quite like this, out of the soil of friendliness grows the bloom of compassion watered by the tears of joy, sheltered under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. All interwoven. Now, 
metta or this boundless friendliness is, is not an emotion. It is actually an attitudinal commitment. It is always relational. It doesn't describe a state somehow remote and disconnected, but a way of being present with all the waves of thoughts, of feelings, of people, events and experiences that make up our world of the moment. The other thing, of course, to appreciate about metta is that it is actually a cultivation. It is a path like any other path that we cultivate, just like mindfulness, attention. It's a conscious cultivation, but it's also something we enact and manifest and translate into our thoughts and our words and our actions. In other words, we don't have to feel kindness to act with kindness. We don't have to feel friendliness in order to act with friendliness. Recently, uh, a couple of months ago, I attended a a training offered by a group of people called Combatants for Peace. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of them. Um, But it was a group of Palestinian and Israeli activists all of who had a really terrible history of war and conflict and violence. And during this training, of course, some, some told some of their stories of their seeing their families killed by snipers or bombs. Some told the story of themselves killing others. One Palestinian young man of 27 had spent 12 years of his life in an Israeli prison. And all of them spoke of the way in which hatred and mistrust and fear and suspicion had permeated their lives for as long as they could remember. Some of the people in this group didn't even share a common language, but they all shared a common past. And they all spoke about the turning point in their lives and in their minds when they saw in their own unshakable way that they did not want their past to be their future and committed themselves to this this group, this combatants for peace. It wasn't easy, this was no easy thing for them to do because they saw, as we see, the ways of which in which the past and all the waves of the past arise again and again in the present with our, with our memories, with our stories of hurt, our memories of, of rejection, our resentments, our reaction. And actually, this is the invitation of metta. To know all of this does and can arise in the present and to know deeply there's a possibility of walking another pathway. To know just as our memories and reactions arise in the present, so do does our possibility of either reinforcing and solidifying them, feeding them, and then maintaining suffering. Or come to know through a very conscious cultivation of metta what it is perhaps to radically change the shape of our mind in, our, in a moment, 
and in doing that, to radically change the shape of our world in, our, in that moment. When I went to this training, I was incredibly deeply touched by the size of the undertaking that this group of Palestinians and Israelis, men and women, young and older, had committed themselves to. Because not only did they share this history of mistrust and hatred, but in choosing to walk the pathways they did, they were actually mostly forsaken and judged by their families, their communities, their societies. But their path that they chose to walk on was almost simultaneously two different pathways. One was undertaking an inner journey of somehow changing this ancient historical legacy of hatred and reactivity. But the other path that they were walking on was this manifestation of the commitment to peace the commitment to kindness. So they would do things like walk after bulldozers, replanting uprooted olive trees, protect children from abuse as they walked to school, blocked settlements being built, and to love each other. This was not what was happening in this group. To love each other was really, no doubt, asking too much. To undo the past was asking too much. But they could learn to stand next to each other. They could learn to stand near to all of this. And in that sense, metta was really a commitment of the heart, translated into intention, manifested in thoughts and words and actions in the way of being present with all things. It was a tremendous, in meta in this sense, was a tremendous act of courage. Now, why did the Buddha give so, in his teaching, give so much emphasis to the development of metta, of boundless friendliness? When he looked at his own heart and his own life, and the, when he looked at the world that he lived in, what he saw was the destructive power of ill will. The power of ill will to leech joy from life, to create estrangement and fear and alienation, to stifle the capacity for authenticity, for integrity, for respect and compassion. He saw the way, the way in which ill will had really only one outcome, which was to create and to perpetuate suffering in himself and in all his relationships and way of be, ways of being in the world. In the Buddhist teaching, so much of it revolves around really understanding these three primary tendencies that keep us entangled in conflict and in struggle and despair, the three primary tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, ill will, and delusion. And they're all interwoven. It's not as if they're separate tendencies. They're tangled knots of confusion. What is the primary purpose in cultivating metta, in cultivating boundless friendliness? It's to untangle this knot, to uproot the tendency towards ill will and aversion. As the Buddha put it, he said, 
One who actively develops metta, mindfully and without limit, will see their clinging fade and their bonds become worn thin. Notice the word actively here. What does it mean to actively cultivate metta? In all the moments of ill will and aversion, that arise? Well, in those moments, metta is always relational. It's the willingness to stand near to ne- and stand next to all of those flickers of ill will rather than to flee. Now, ill will, I mean, it's a strange term in some ways, but it has so many names and so many different faces. In its grosser forms, of course, ill will is hatred, it's blame, it's condemnation, it's contempt, the base of all the forms of prejudice and oppression that exist in our world. But ill will, of course, has many more subtle faces, judgment, envy, jealousy, impatience, resistance. The list is very long. You know, even, even I think ill will can manifest as numbness and fantasy. Because both, but we see both mindfulness and metta is the inclination to stand near to, to stand next to all things, all events, all experiences, all people. And we see what is the inclination of ill will. It is to turn away from, to reject to deny, to avoid, to suppress, to resist, to flee. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a jewel of a teaching that says, we should not be afraid of the passions that lead us to embrace all sentient beings in the arms of compassion. But we should be afraid of the passions that lead us to forsake any sentient being. What is the passion that leads us to forsake others or to forsake ourselves? It is mostly this passion of ill will. So cultivating metta in the midst of ill will clearly is an insight practice. It is the cultivation of understanding what it is that keeps this toxic tendency of ill will alive in our hearts and our lives. Because this tendency of ill will is actually so contradictory to what we most deeply treasure and long for. If we look at our deepest values, our deepest longings, of course, there are wish for safety, our wish for connectedness, our wish for happiness, our wish for our sen- a sense of ease in the world, to be a friend to ourselves, to be a friend to others. And yet ill will somehow negates or contradicts this deepest longing. Now, one aspect, I think, of ill will that becomes immediately apparent if we can find the willingness to explore this very difficult emotional landscape is that in the presence of ill will, the voice of selfing becomes much stronger 
much louder, much more dominant. Have you noticed that? You know, it, in each moment of ill will, it, we, we can feel that voice go stronger. It's almost like the strength of the aversion is the degree of strength that the voice of selfing assumes. The story gets much bigger. The story gets much louder. I don't want this. I don't like this. I can't bear this. I can't accept this. I hate this. And you notice when that voice of selfing gets stronger in the climate of ill will, so does the sense of other, apart and separate, also get much more solid. Now, when we talk about the other, the self-creating, the sense of other, we're not just talking about the other as another person that we dislike or can't bear. That becomes very obvious to us, doesn't it, in difficult relationships. You know, that as I, in the presence of dislike or fear or aversion, I get much bigger, but the other gets much more solid also, much louder in a way. But you know what? The other is sometimes within ourselves. The other is sometimes the emotions we can't accept, the body experiences we can't accept, the memories that are difficult. And that strength of the other, and in that sense, we become disconnected from ourselves through the power of ill will. We become estranged, actually, from much of our own experience. So the strength of other grows proportionally to the strength of me and the solidity of I. And it is so important, I think, to find in ourselves the the kind of gentleness and the kindness and the tenderness, the curiosity to, to really explore this landscape of ill will and this creation of self and other, which is the root of all conflict and estrangement in all its forms to explore that, rather than to follow the all-too-familiar pathways of heaping ill will upon ill will. Where we tell ourselves, I shouldn't be so aversive, I shouldn't be so judgmental, I shouldn't be so disdainful, it just shows what a terrible and unworthy person I am. Now, metta, what it teaches us, I think, is to touch all moments all experiences with kindness, including moments of aversion. Perhaps this becomes equally clear to us that when ill will is not present, and there are many moments when ill will is not present, that in the light of kindness, in the light of mindfulness, in the light of compassion, in truth, in the light of all that is wholesome, and skillful and ennobling qualities that are also part of the fabric of our heart and mind, this sense of self and othering becomes much quieter. It becomes much more transparent. And this is such a significant, I think, investigation to take into our day, just to notice, just to be aware in our day in what kind of climate of heart does the idea of a separate, fragile, fearful, aversive self arise and thrive? And in what kind of inner climate, what kind of inner conditions 
does this sense of a separate self, an estranged other, even our own emotions or bodies, in what kind of inner climate and conditions does that sense of solidity really begin to fall away and to calm? Now, much of the practice of metta is really devoted to understanding and dispelling the illusion of a separated self and other. Substantial, estranged. Understanding how that gets constructed. And really to come to see that, you know, as I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. And maybe we begin to appreciate our shared humanity, our shared human story, in which the longing for kindness, for respect, for care and understanding is really the bond. And perhaps in that can equally long to almost find the, or begin to find the freedom that is born of extinguishing some of the fires of ill will. I think that deepening in this path really depends upon us learning to be tender with all things, with kindness, with tolerance, with the person we judge or find intrusive. Learning to be kind, to be tender with the one who is harsh, cold, impatient, reactive, knowing that in some moment we have probably too been all of these things. Being tender with ourselves, knowing all our moments of harshness and reactivity, our feelings of unworthiness at times, shame, have been born of conditions whose beginning is untraceable. The Buddha in the Metta Sutta, he describes this attitude. As a mother watches over her child, her only child, willing to risk her own life to protect her child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, suffusing the whole world with unobstructed metta. I think Mary Oliver put this kind of slightly different. She said, and therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silent silence. And each body a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth. Looking at the conditions that ill will rests upon, because it doesn't arise from a vacuum. And the primary condition, and perhaps the most obvious one, because it's a primary condition for the arising of any quality of the heart that's unskillful, that creates suffering, is really the identification with me. The identification with me as being a separate, independent, enduring self, defined by my body, feeling, 
perceptions, tendencies, consciousness. It's a defining that goes on moment to moment through our day as we identify with this, that, or the other in our experience. And what is, I think, so interesting to see is that very nature of defining is also the nature of limiting. And the very nature of defining and limiting is to create a a sense of contractedness and fear. You know, I think that somehow, intuitively, we all really know the first noble truth. Intuitively, on some level, we all really know how deeply fragile and uncertain our life actually is and how vulnerable we really truly are to the changing and unstable conditions of this world and of life itself. And it's almost, it's almost, I feel, as if some, somehow we feel that we cannot bear that truth. So we try, through identification, to make something solid, to make something that feels invulnerable, to make something that feels enduring, to protect, to defend, to make a me. Even though, I have to say, we don't often even like the me that is being constructed. But it seems better than just opening to this fragile, uncertain, changing life. Now these limitations, uh, the limited definitions of me carry with them I think always an undercurrent of anxiety, the anxiety of me, the fear of injury, the fear of loss, the fear of harm, the fear of pain, the fear of failure, fear of not being good enough, and fear is essentially the ground of ill will. Fear is essentially the ground of aversion, of pushing away, and of rejection. Rejecting. It's almost, I think, as if it doesn't really occur to us that there might be a freer and a kinder and a wiser way of approaching this intrinsic vulnerability. And that freer and kinder way would be to embrace it with kindness and with compassion and with courage and learning to soften and to open. Because if we see that identification is a primary condition, ground upon which ill will thrives and feeds, it's only one of them. Craving is another. The Buddha once said, the path of those who cultivate metta is the path of those who are learning to be at ease in the midst of all conditions. Actually, in the Metta Sutta, the Buddha refers to this so strongly by just saying this very simple line. May they be... This is the work of those who are skilled and peaceful, who seek the good. May they be content and easily supported, unburdened with their senses calmed. Content and easily supported, unburdened, with their senses calmed. Mm. 
what we start to see, of course, in our life and our practice, a craving and ill will are really just two different sides of the same tendency. And they make us agitated. They make us agitated. You know, craving also is born of this sense of insufficiency and fear and does exactly the same thing as ill will. It teaches us to abandon what is. Teaches us to abandon the moment of not enough. Teaches us to abandon ourselves of not good enough, not having enough. Teaching us to abandon what is. In both craving and aversion are the ways of forsaking. Forsaking others, forsaking ourselves. So learning to rest with what is, which of course is what we do in this practice all the time. We are learning to rest at ease in the midst of all conditions. Learning to do that is actually learning a quality of inner freedom of not being a hostage of conditions. Because that is what craving aversion does. It makes us a prisoner of conditions. We see that one of the key threads in in metta is that when there is no contentment, we're always somewhere else. We're always somewhere else. A better moment, please. You know, a better body, a better walking path. You know, we get really kind kind of mundane with this craving inversion stuff, you know. A better cushion, please, you know, less lights, you know. Always a better, a better experience. It's abandonment all the time. It's making our hearts a prisoner of conditions. Contentment is part of metta. Learning to stand near all things. It is the beginning of boundless friendliness. With contentment, by the way, not a kind of bovine contentment, we're learning to calm and to release agitation. We're learning to be upright in all moments, rather leaning forward into the future or backwards into the past. And we start to begin to taste this quality of metta, this this boundless friendliness that embraces all things, all events, the lovely and the unlovely, the wonderful and the exasperating. It is almost as if the mantra of metta is this too, this too, can be held, can be embraced in the arms of kindness. Non-identification, contentment, ease, mindfulness, integrity, these are all conditions, they're not accidents. These are pathways that we cultivate, and they're the conditions we cultivate in which metta really thrives and flourishes. But so too is courage. It is not easy to stand near to sorrow or to blame or to pain. It's not easy to stand near to difficult people and emotions. And metta is certainly not being about being nice or, or sentimental. These are kind of the near enemies of metta. But it's about courage. Being still in the waves of aversion, even the flickers of aversion that do arise. It's not saying they shouldn't arise. They do arise. But what does it mean to be still and to learn to swim against the tide a little bit? 
Think how often they arise in a single day. You know, an unpleasant sound, an unpleasant sight appears, a difficult body sensation, a difficult emotion. We catch sight of someone we maybe dislike a little, and we see how quickly is that movement into pushing away, into judging, into uh, beginning a story about avoidance, about, you know, it becomes very behavioral, you know, how do I avoid this, how do I I disconnect? It, It seems, it does seem, doesn't it, that it's a lot easier to be aversive than to greet the moment with metta. It's like the mind clings to the pathways it knows. The mind clings to the pathways it knows. But this is the place, actually, where mindfulness and metta go hand in hand. Learning to pause, to have the courage, to stay present, to be upright, not to abandon. The courage simply not to abandon, not to turn away. Knowing that each moment of abandonment is not only reinforces the very patterns of ill will, but actually every moment of abandonment really delivers the peace and the well-being and the freedom of our hearts into the hands of a thought, a set of conditions, into the hands of another. Investing that other with the power to determine our well-being and happiness. I think sometimes we think that the small moments of aversion, of abandon, don't really matter. But our participation in them, of course, are the very building blocks of the much greater waves of fear and feelings of powerlessness. We do not have to love the difficult, but we maybe don't need to forsake it. And we can learn to plant the seeds again and again to meet this moment with mindfulness, with friendliness, seeds that, with practice, grow into the possibility of a truly boundless friendliness where we see so clearly that metta is not just something we feel, it is something we do. It requires mindfulness, requires intention, requires commitment. I think, like most words in Pali, it is good to turn metta into a verb. We are befriending. We're not friendly. We are befriending. It is a process, an enactment, an embodiment, an intention, including ourselves. Now, the cultivation of metta, I think, is and always has been part of the path of awakening, illuminating all places, all, all moments where ill will in so many different forms can cast its shadow. It is a path of deeply knowing in ourselves, acknowledging the destructive, toxic power of our ill will. It's also knowing that ill will is actually suffering. It's suffering, it's distress. And it's seeing how suffering, how dukkha actually is created and recreated moment to moment. So again, dukkha is not a state, comes to be a verb. How dukkha is created and recreated moment to moment through making our home in that which actually abandons what is. 
Metta is a dedication to bringing suffering to an end, and it's what aversion asks for. Aversion doesn't ask for blame. But it's cultivation. You know, how many opportunities truly do we have to cultivate this quality of metta, befriending in a single day? How many opportunities have there been today? I don't know how it is for you. <laughs> you know, there's one or two out there, you know. And its cultivation lies in all those moments that we turn away from anything in this life. And we don't think in terms of my suffering or your suffering. But there's a simple truth, there's a simple actuality that where there is ill will, there is suffering. There is clinging. And it gets enacted. Where there is metta, there is the possibility of bringing, contributing towards the ending of suffering in that moment. So we cultivate the conditions of metta, the parents of metta, contentment, integrity, courage. It takes effort, but in time it becomes effortless and it is also joyful. It is also joyful. It begins to reveal its own fruit the taste of the loveliness of metta. I want to end with a short story. A young man who had just completed his spiritual training and was eagerly intent on becoming a teacher moved to a new town. He tried to teach, but no one came. The only spiritual interest in the town was in the many followers of a wise and well-known rabbi. Frustrated, the young teacher devised a plan to embarrass the old master and gain students for himself. He captured a small bird and one day went to where the master was seated, surrounded by many disciples. Holding the small bird in his hand, he spoke directly to the master. If you are so wise, tell me now, is this bird in my hand alive? Or is it dead? His plan was this. If the master said the bird was dead, he would open his hand, the bird would fly away, the master would be wrong, and students would come to him. If the master said the bird was alive, he would quickly crush the bird in his hand and open it and say, see, the bird is dead. Again, the master would be wrong, and the young teacher would gain students. He sat poised in front of the master, demanding an answer. Tell me, if you are so wise, is this bird alive or is it dead? The master looked at him with great compassion and answered quite simply, Really, my friend, it's up to you. And this, I think, is also the nature of the teaching of metta. In a way, it truly is up to us. What we do with our attention what we do with mindfulness, what we do with our intentions, where we actually choose to make our home in that which leads to suffering or that which leads to the end of suffering. And this is, of course, a choice of the moment in our hands. So if we have just a moment quietly together...
out of the soil of friendliness grows the bloom of compassion, watered by the tears of joy, sheltered under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. Thank you for your attention. So we have time now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.